19. One day, when we'd been at the Hotel X for five or six weeks, Boris disappeared without notice. In the evening, I found him waiting in for me in the Rue de Rivoli. He slapped me gaily on the shoulder. Free at last, mon ami. You can give notice in the morning. The auberge opens tomorrow. Tomorrow? Well, possibly we shall need a day or two to arrange things, but at any rate, no more cafetieri. Nous voilà lancés, mon ami. My tailcoat is out of pawn already. His manner was so hearty that I felt that there was something wrong. I didn't want to leave my safe and comfortable job at the hotel. However, I had promised Boris, so I gave notice, and the next morning at seven went down to the auberge de Jean Catard, and it was locked, and I went in search of Boris, who had once more bolted from his lodgings and taken a room in the Rue de Croix-Nivertre. I found him asleep, together with a girl whom he had picked up the night before, and who he had told me was of a very sympathetic temperament. As to the restaurant, he said that it was all arranged, and there was only a few little things to be seen before we opened up. At ten, I managed to get Boris out of bed, and we unlocked the restaurant. At a glance, I saw that the few little things amounted to briefly this, that the alterations had not been touched since our last visit, that the stoves for the kitchen had not arrived, the water and electricity had not been laid on, and there was all manner of painting, polishing, and carpeting to be done. Nothing short of a miracle could open the restaurant within ten days, and by the look of things it might collapse without even opening. It was obvious what had happened. The patron was short of money, and he had engaged the staff, and there were four of us, in order for using us instead of workmen. He would be getting our services almost free, because waiters are paid no wages, and though he would have to pay me, he would not be feeding me till the restaurant actually opened. In effect, he'd swindled us of several hundred francs by sending for us before the restaurant was opened. We'd thrown up a good job for nothing. Boris, however, was full of hope. He had only one idea in his head, namely that here at last was a chance of being a waiter and wearing a tailcoat once more, and for this he was quite willing to do ten days' unpaid work, with the chance of being left jobless at the end. Patience, he kept saying. The will arrange itself. All of it will arrange itself. Wait till the restaurant opens and we'll get it all back. Patience, mon ami. We needed patience, because days passed and the restaurant didn't even progress towards opening. We cleaned out the cellars, fixed the shelves, distempered the walls, polished the woodwork, whitewashed the ceiling, stained the floor. But the main work, the plumbing and the gas fitting and electricity, was still not done, because the patron could not pay the bills. Evidently he was almost as penniless because he refused the smallest charges, and he was a, had a trick of swiftly disappearing when asked for money. His blend of shiftiness and aristocratic manners made him very hard to deal with. 
Melancholy duns came looking for him at all hours, and by instruction we always told them that he was at the Fontainebleau, or the Saint-Cloud, or some other place which was safely distant. Meanwhile, I was getting hungrier and hungrier. I had left the hotel with thirty francs, and I had to go back immediately to a diet of dry bread. Boris had managed in the beginning to extract an advance of sixty francs from the patron, but he had spent half of it in redeeming his waiter's clothes, and half on the girl of sympathetic temperament. He borrowed three francs a day from Jules, the second waiter, and he spent it on bread. Some days we had not even money for tobacco. Sometimes the cook came to see how things were getting on, and when she saw that the kitchen was still bare of pots and pans, she usually wept. Jules, the second waiter, refused steadily to help with the work. He was a magar, a little dark, sharp-featured fellow in spectacles, and very talkative. He'd also been a medical student, but he'd abandoned his training for lack of money. He had a taste for talking while other people were working, and he told me all about himself and his ideas. It appeared that he was a communist, and had various strange theories. He could prove to you by figures that it was wrong to work. And he was also, like most Magars, passionately proud. Proud and lazy men do not make good waiters. It was Jules's dearest boast that once when a customer in a restaurant had insulted him, he poured a plate of hot soup down the customer's neck and then walked straight out without even waiting to be sacked. As each day went by, Jules grew more and more enraged at the trick the Petron had played on us. He was spluttering, he had an oratorical way of talking, and he used to walk up and down shaking his fist and trying to incite me not to work. "'Put that brush down, you fool! You and I belong to proud races. We don't work for nothing, like these damned Russian serfs. I tell you, to be cheated like this is torture to me. There have been times in my life when someone has cheated me, even of five sous, when I have vomited. Yes, vomited with rage. And besides, mon vieux, don't forget that I'm a communist, a basse-le-bourgeois. Did any man alive ever see me working when I could avoid it? Ah, no. And not only I don't wear myself out working like you other fools, but I steal, just, just to show my independence. Once I was in a restaurant where the patron thought he could treat me like a dog. Well, in revenge, I found out a way to steal milk from the milk cans and seal them up again so that no one should know. <laughs> I tell you, I just swilled that milk down night and morning. Every day I drank four litres of milk, besides half a litre of cream. The patron was at his wit's end to know where the milk was going. <laughs> it wasn't that I wanted milk, you understand? Because I hate the stuff. It was the principle. It's just, just the principle. Well, after three days I began to get dreadful pains in my belly, and I went to the doctor. What have you been eating, he said. I said I'd drink four litres of milk a day and half a litre of cream. Four litres, he said. Then stop it at once. 
You're best if you go on. What do I care, I said. With me, principle is everything. I shall go on drinking that milk, even if I do burst. Well, the next day the Petron caught me stealing the milk. You're sacked, he said. You can leave at the end of the week. Pardon, monsieur, I said. I shall leave this morning. No, you won't, he said. I can't spare you till Saturday. Very well, mon patron, I thought to myself. We'll see who gets tired of it first. And then I set to work to smash the crockery. I broke nine plates the first day and thirteen plates the second day. After that, the patron was glad to see the last of me. Ha! I'm not one of your Russian mujiks. Ha! Ten days passed. It was a bad time. I was absolutely at the end of my money, and my rent was several days overdue. We loafed about the dismal empty restaurant, too hungry even to get on with the work that remained. Only Boris now believed that the restaurant would open. He set his heart on being the maître de hôtel, and he invented a theory that the patron's money was tied up in shares, and he was waiting for a favourable moment for selling. On the tenth day I had nothing to eat or smoke and I told the patron that I could not continue working without an advance on my wages. As blandly as usual, the patron promised the advance, and then, according to his custom, vanished. I walked part of the way home, but I did not feel equal to the scene with Madame F. over the rent, so I passed the night on a bench in the boulevard. It was very uncomfortable. The arm of the seat cuts into your back, and much colder than I'd expected— there was plenty of time in the long, boring hours between dawn and work to think what a fool I'd been to deliver myself into the hands of these Russians. And then, in the morning, the luck changed. Evidently the patron had come to an understanding with his creditors, for he arrived with money in his pockets. He set the alterations going, and he gave me my advance. Boris and I bought macaroni and a piece of horse's liver, and we had our first hot meal in ten days. The workmen were brought in, and the alterations made hastily and with incredible shoddiness. The tables, for instance, were to be covered with baize, but when the patron found that baize was expensive, he bought material instead of dis from disused army blankets, smelling incorrigibly of sweat. The tablecloths, and they were check, to go to with the Norman decorations, would cover them, of course. On the last night we were at work till two in the morning, getting things ready. The crockery did not arrive till eight, and being new, it all had to be washed. The cutlery did not arrive till the next morning, and nor the linen either, so we had to dry the crockery with a shirt of the patrons and an old pillow slip belonging to the concierge. Boris and I did all the work. Jules was skulking, and the patron and his wife sat in the bar with a dun and some Russian friends drinking success to the restaurant. The cook was in the kitchen with her head on the table crying because she was expected to cook for fifty people, and there were not pots and pans enough for ten. About midnight there was a fearful interview with some duns who came intending to seize eight copper saucepans which the patron had obtained on credit. They were bought off with half a bottle of brandy. 
Jules and I missed the last Metro home when we had to sleep on the floor of the restaurant. And the first thing we saw in the morning were two large rats sitting on the kitchen table, eating from a ham that stood there. It seemed a bad omen, and I was sure than ever that the auberge de Jean Cotard would turn out a failure. <laughs>